Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. So Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we thank you this morning for... We thank you for the gospel. We never tire of talking about, reading about, preaching about, living, experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus shed His blood, His body was beaten, He was tortured upon a cross, His blood shed and He died in His body, but for my sin and for all of our sins. And Lord, we, we stay humble because of this. We realize that the source of our salvation is not within us, but it is completely in You for those who are in Christ. So this morning we thank You for this reality We ask you this morning, Lord, as we approach this time, not with somberness, but with soberness, we approach this time uh, to discern your body and to give honor to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's been a lot of talk the last three or four weeks about the Asbury Revival. University in Kentucky, Christian University that started an impromptu prayer meeting in their chapel that grew to, I guess, thousands of people attending that went on for several days. It seems like that everybody, especially on social media, feels like they have to have an opinion about everything. And it's okay not to have opinions about things, but I have so many people that I know, and I have people that uh, I know that actually came out against what was going on. A lot of people that came out for it. Um, you know, I, my answer to all of this is I'm not God. I don't know what God's doing. I certainly don't want to squash something that's going on. And if you want to criticize something, surely you can find something better to criticize than a bunch of young people getting together to pray. Uh, so... God does give revival. True revival is sovereign. We don't generate, we don't create revival. True revival is given by God. It's it's the grace of God. I said to a friend of mine on the phone a couple weeks ago, only God knows and only eternity will tell what young man 20 years from now will make a different decision in his life because of something that happened in Asbury 20 years before that that he experienced. 
we can't quantify these things. I'm not qualified to give expert opinions on these things. Only God knows. I'm not God. <clears throat> but one of the things that came out of this the last three or four weeks is people talking about the ordinary means of grace. What does that mean? The ordinary means of grace. That we must remember as a church that the way that we because we can't generate revival, I can't pull it out of the sky or out of a hat, but what do we do regularly? And this is what ordinary means. What do we do ordinarily? And so there's a lot of talk about the ordinary means of grace, which is a thing. It's a, it means something, that phrase. So how many, and maybe surprise if nobody, but how many is familiar or knows what a catechism is? That will help me to, okay. So, if you were Catholic, you would know what a catechism is. Uh, from a child, you would know what this is. You would have been catechized if you were Catholic. But it's not just for the Catholic Church. I know people who are against catechism because the Catholics do it, and I said, well, just because the Catholics do it doesn't mean it's wrong. They do lots of things that we do. But all a catechism is, and it's really relevant to children, this is how they teach and train children. And this is why, um, growing up, my pastor used to say, Catholics make the best Pentecostals. And he said, because they understand teaching, they appreciate teaching. And because from a child you are catechized. And all a catechism is, is it's a list that is questions and answers, questions and answers, questions and answers. And children memorize these things. And this is how they are indoctrinated. Well, it's not just for Catholics. The Protestant Church, and since we are not Presbyterian or Episcopalian, now those, those are the groups that usually put a lot of weight. If you were Presbyterian this morning, you would know what a catechism is. And they follow these very closely. And all these are, are summations of the Christian faith in question and answer form. So probably the most famous catechism is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was written in the mid-1600s. And the first question of that, and I think it would be good for us to at least know this, the first question is this, and this will give you an idea of what the catechism is. The question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end or purpose? Why is man here? And the answer is, in the catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now imagine people memorizing these, and then be able to instill that. You're becoming indoctrinated. So when someone were to ask you, what is the chief end of man? You can answer, my chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism has, I think, 106 of these questions in it that cover the entire gamut of the Christian faith. Now, I don't agree with the entire catechism. The Westminster Catechism, again, is practiced a lot by Presbyterians, um, and they would support infant baptism. So there's something in the Westminster Catechism that says, we baptize infants. And we are not. We are Baptistic people. We as a, as a people, we are Baptistic, meaning that we believe that baptism is for the professing believer. That it's, we call it credo-baptism, that we have a profession of faith before we're baptized. So we don't baptize infants. So it's not that I agree with everything in this, in this catechism, but it has a lot of great points 
And one of them, and this is where the idea of the ordinary means of grace comes out, is the 88th question that says, What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Let me read that again. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is, in the Catechism, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer. What does that mean? It means prayer, preaching, and the Lord's Supper. We have two ordinances or two sacraments. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are our two ordinances that are sacraments that we believe in. And one of those, so you're only baptized one time. You're not baptized every time you make a mistake in life. You're baptized once. But the Lord's Supper is the ordinance, the sacrament that you continue to come to the table to experience the Lord's grace. The Catholic Church would, they would teach this idea that grace is like salvation and grace comes through the sacraments. That is how grace comes to you. They would call it, there's a Latin phrase for it, and it just is that that's how you are saved. That's how grace is given to you. We don't believe that. We don't teach that. We don't practice that. It is in remembrance, but it's also more than ceremonial. We don't believe that in the elements, that the elements, what we call the, the, the bread and the, and the wine or the juice, we don't say that they are the literal physical body of Christ. The Catholic Church would teach that. But we also believe that Christ does appear when we do this. That there, it's not just ceremonial, it's not just in memoriam, but that there is a spiritual essence that Christ appears among us when we take the Lord's Supper. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic gospels, just because they kind of run along beside each other with the stories they tell, they all three record the Last Supper that Jesus had before he died. And they all record Jesus blessing the bread and the cup, and Jesus saying the bread is his body and the wine, the fruit of the vine is his blood. But Luke records Jesus telling them to do this in remembrance of me, which is what the church has always done. I thought this this morning, and there may be something else, but I cannot think of anything else that the church does within the broad heading of Christianity that the church agrees on other than the Lord's Supper. Now, like I said, the Catholic Church views what is happening at the time a little differently, but we all do it, and we all pretty much do it the same way. There are three major divisions within Christianity. There's the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. We like to think we're the center of the world, but as far as in the world, people who profess themselves to be Christians, the Protestant movement is by far the smallest movement. And I'm not saying that all of the rest of that is even valid. That's not my argument this morning, but I'm saying for people who call themselves Christian, we are in the minority. So the Catholic Church, they have seven sacraments, we have two. Some people don't like the word sacrament, they're averse. I grew up allergic to sacramentalism. We are not that, we are not that traditional. 
so you call it sacrament, you call it ordinance, whatever you want to call it. But the Lord's Supper has been observed from the very beginning of Christianity. What you are doing today, what we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper, is we join with millions and millions of other believers throughout the century to proclaim the death of Jesus. We know this because there is this small book called the Didacte. It was written right after the Bible. Like some people think it was written during the time of the Apostles. Most people think it was written probably right after the close of the biblical age. And we don't look at it as authoritative. Most people don't read it or have ever heard of it, but it's so valuable because it's the earliest record we have of Christianity. And it's a record of right after the Bible closes, what was the church doing? Now there are things that in the, the didacte that we read and say, well, they probably didn't have that quite right. But what we do know is that they were immediately celebrating the Lord's Supper. So this is how we know that from the beginning of the church age, the church has celebrated, has, has commemorated communion. Who participates in the Lord's Supper? This is for, and I think this is important because I know people who have not taken communion because they don't think their life is in line with where it should be. Well, whose life is in line with where it really should be in Christ? We all have shortcomings. We're all fighting and dwelling sin. So it's for the believer. It's not for, maybe it's better said that it's not for the unbeliever. It's for people who signify that they are a professing believer in Christ. It's not for the person that does not believe. We do it in public. It is not a hidden ritual. It's not secretive. There is no cultic inference. It is a public proclamation by the church of our faith. It is an act of worship. And I think this is where we must stop and say, when we do this, we worship God. It is an act of worship. When we do this today, it is counted to us as worship. Worship is not just people gathering together in a Christian venue with a band and lights and singing. That can be worship, but if that's a person's definition of worship, they've missed the entire biblical idea of what it means to be a worshiper. Paul said that we present ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices unto God, which is our spiritual worship. We worship God with our bodies. We worship God with everything that we do. It is something that we do together. We make exceptions. I believe it's very valuable and important for a person in a nursing home or a shut-in to receive communion one-on-one, -on -one, but those are the exceptions. The church, as a rule, celebrates this together. The church in Corinth, and we didn't read it this morning, but in 1 Corinthians 11, the church in Corinth was minimizing the importance of the Lord's Supper by making it an event that very closely resembled their own supper. They were getting together. They were getting drunk. They're drinking wine during this. They're getting drunk. And people who don't have money aren't able to eat at this supper. This is but one of Corinth's many offenses. This is a very troubled, carnal church that Paul has to, to set straight. And Paul tells them, it's not your supper, it's the Lord's supper. 
It's not for us to fill ourselves and come together and eat a meal. It is for us to empty ourselves before Christ. It is not for us to sit around the table and laugh. It is for us to come to the table and worship. It is not a place for us to take our fill according to who can afford the food at the table and let those less fortunate go hungry. It is a place for all to come at the foot of the cross on equal ground as equally unworthy and cast our crowns at His feet. Paul said, you go home, you eat your supper, and then come together and eat the Lord's Supper. Paul's words in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together as a church, again, this is as the church, it's for worshipers, it's for disciples. And Paul recounts the words of Jesus that I read in Luke. And so we take the bread and we take the fruit of the vine. I don't get weighed down in things like, do we have to use wine or can we use grape juice? Uh, we're using grape juice, but it should be bread and it should be the fruit of the vine. This is what the church has taught. Uh, we don't drink iced tea and eat cookies. I've heard people say, if you're watching at home in a, a broadcast communion service and you don't have this, just go to the refrigerator and get this. And you know, No, this is not a place to eat uh, E.L. Fudge and drink Gatorade. Like, that's not what we're doing here. This is, uh, there is a weight to what we're doing. There must be a sense of awe and respect for we are proclaiming the death of the Lord. I, I was raised by a pastor that when he came to the town in 1963, he used actual wine in the communion. And no one could have been more adamant against drinking alcohol at any level than him. But for communion, he was okay with, with wine. Uh, and it was the men in the church that went to him and said, Pastor, we have men here who are uh, struggling with this. We have, uh, you know, people who, that, that, like, this is an issue in the church for some of these people. And you're putting wine before them. Like, can we use juice? And, and, and he relented and, and did, um, but it was probably more common years ago in Protestant churches to just use wine because of the, the issues that we have dealt with, um, with alcohol in and out of the church over the years. It's, pro it's moved a lot of churches to juice. I don't make a big deal out of that. I just say it should be uh, the fruit of the vine. Most important, though, is that there must be a sense of respect. There must be a recognition that there is a weight to what we're doing here when we take the Lord's Supper. How often should we do it? Well, Paul, thank you, Paul, for saying, as often as you do it. He's not specific. Uh, again, I grew up uh, in a church that was allergic to sacramentalism. And so we did it once a year. I don't think that's enough. I think we miss something very important. Some churches do it quarterly, some churches do it weekly. Uh, there is no definitive answer in Scripture, like a lot of things in the Bible, in the specifics of worshiping together. The Bible seems to give us some leeway. Um, however, I, this is where I rely on church history. I have to. I rely on church history because it allows me to say that there's people a lot smarter than me that see things that I don't see. So I look at how other people do it. I was in a communion service three or four years ago, and I'm sure this is how it's always been all my life, but I never got to go 
see how the sausage is made in the kitchen. And I went in literally that night into the kitchen where communion was being served and they were taking, there were bottles of grape juice and all the bread. And they was taking the rest of it, dumping it down the drain, taking all the bread and throwing it in the trash. And that bothered me. I said, I know this is just grape juice that they sell at Kroger's, but tonight this was the blood of Jesus. This was the body of the Lord. Shouldn't we, like, how do we dispose of this? Like, how do we handle this? And it bothered me. It felt irreverent to me. So I went and I said, church history, teach me how the church has handled this. We can't be, I can't be the only person that's ever wrestled with how do we dispose of the elements after communion. There's always going to be leftovers. What do you do? And it tells us that the church is taught that it is only the elements during communion and that after communion, It ceases to be the elements and it is ordinary juice and bread and crackers and can be disposed of in any manner, just like they were doing. And I said, okay, I'm going to trust that the the people, the wisdom of, of men and women much smarter and wiser than me, that they have discerned this. Um, And the other question is how else would you do it? Like what else would you do with the elements? Um, So, I say this because I also take cadence of how often the church does it. I have friends who to not celebrate the Lord's Supper on every Sunday would be very foreign to them. And this is the church the church has celebrated historically. The church has celebrated the Lord's Supper every time they come together. It was just a given. Um, This is why in churches years ago you would see at the center, you would see a pulpit and in front of the pulpit you would see the table. And a lot of times it would be engraved in the wood, this do in remembrance of me. And it was symbolized that when you walk into the church, you see the pulpit and the table, that we are going to champion the Word of God and the Lord's Supper every time we come together. This is what the church has done. The table has been removed by and large. One of the things that's replaced it in fairly modern times is the altar call, um, which is a very modern invention in church. I'm not against altar calls, meaning at the end of service, people come forward, pray, people get prayed for. Um, I'm for that, I'm not against it in any capacity. But it is a very modern idea to do that during during corporate worship. Um, But the Lord's Supper, that's not. That is something that the church has done since the beginning of time. I would like us to proclaim Jesus together through the Lord's Supper at least once a month. That has been my desired cadence. And I know we need to find a cadence of that, but I think it seems a good balance while saying I think there is a good argument to also do it weekly. Paul quotes Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. As we eat, we remember. The Jews have this down perfectly from Scripture that they have tied food in together with with their feasts. Because what brings you back to remembrance more than a smell, more than a taste? Like if you've ever tasted something that you haven't tasted since you were a child, you are transported back to that spot immediately. You ever get a a smell, walked into a room, whatever it is, why? Because there's just something there about how we're made. And so the Jews in their feasts every year, having their feast, having their meals, it is a time to bring them back together and we... Remember, I eat turkey once a year. 
I shouldn't say that, maybe lunch meat turkey throughout the year, but actual turkey turkey, I eat it once a year on Thanksgiving. If I were to eat a turkey in March, I'm sure I would sit down and eat that and have in my mind, I would be thinking about Thanksgivings and times past. Why? Because there is something about that taste, that smell that, that connects that. And this is all Jesus is saying. He says, as we eat, we remember. We intentionally call to our minds the person of Jesus, the works of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the forgiveness of Jesus. And all of that gives us redemption in His blood and the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends that dwells in us. We remember Jesus. The Lord's Supper keeps us grounded. It keeps us rooted. This is not a mystical experience. This is a historic person. The man Christ Jesus who had a body, who had blood that coursed through His veins. He was a man and He died. If we were to roll back time, we could meet Him. If they had security cameras in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you could go to the archive footage, pull it up, and see Jesus walking through the streets. He was a real person. You could see him condemned in a Roman court. You could see him hang on a Roman cross and utter his final words and gasp his last breath. We could see him do all of that so sinners could be justified, counted righteous in Christ through their faith in him. So we don't drift in our minds, we don't wander, we don't dream, we remember. Bread and wine, body and blood, martyr and redeemer. There is a spiritual element to what we do. This is why it's for believers. It's because there is a spiritual element. <clears throat> Paul said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So now we go beyond remembering. We not only remember the death of Christ when we eat and drink, but we also participate. We go from passive observers to active participants, participating in the death of Christ. The language Paul is using is the same language that is used when we speak of fellowship. When we sit down in fellowship, that's why we, we talk about sitting down in fellowship and breaking bread. It's this, this, is this idea, it's a sharing, it's a partnership in the death of Christ. When we partake of His death, we are partaking of everything that Christ purchased with His blood. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God promised in the law. Paul said all the promises of God find their yes in Him. In other words, everything the New Testament promised finds its fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the end of the law. Jesus is joy like no other joy that you can ever find. Jesus is peace and contentment that nothing else will give you. Jesus is the answer to everything. And when He died on our behalf, He purchased everything that we need. So when you come to Christ, it's not a mental exercise. Coming to Jesus is, this is not a simply... I believe in Jesus. There is no walking to the front to shake the preacher's hand. There is no praying a sinner's prayer. This is not a mental acknowledgement of Christ. It is a supernatural awakening through faith that brings us to life and brings alive what was dead in us. We are regenerated. When we talk about being born again, John 3, the, the language there is, is more accurately, it's from 
being born from above. It's a heavenly birth. It's, yes, it's a new birth, but it's a heavenly birth born from above, infused with the life that is in Christ. And then, after we're born again, we go and live real life, and the reality of what is still alive within us grows dim. The darkness of this world, when we enter back out into the world, after being born again, the darkness of this world throws a blanket over that light. I've had the opportunity to have lots of conversations with new believers. And one of the things that I always stress to them, I, just, I cannot stress this to you enough, you're in a honeymoon phase right now, but the feeling of this is going to wane. The reality of your place in Christ is not. That's fixed. That's based on fact, not feeling. But the feeling of all this, the honeymoon phase, is going to fade. And there are going to be days that you wake up and you feel like God is a million miles away. The darkness of this world will throw a blanket over the light, but you need to know the light is still there. It's still as bright and powerful as it ever was. Our heart is just deceiving us. So what do we do? How do we make it to the end of this race? The Bible says that he that endures to the end, those are the ones that will be saved. How do I get to the end of this race? The answer is we come back to him over and over and over and over again until we die or until Jesus comes. I keep coming back to the well. I keep finding a place of repentance. I keep praying the prayer, creating me a clean heart, and renewing me a right spirit. I keep asking Him to search my heart for indwelling sin. I keep asking Him to fulfill 1 Corinthians 3.18 in my life, that I would be transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. It's incremental. I come to faith, I'm justified, but I'm nothing like Jesus. But as I go along, I become a little more like Jesus, a little more like Jesus, a little more like Jesus. This is what we do when we come back to the table. Paul said, this is how long Paul said to come back to the Lord's table. How long should, not how often, different conversation, how long should we have the Lord's Supper? And Paul's answer to that was three words, until he comes, until Christ returns back to the earth, that's how long we come to the table. What am I doing? I'm coming back week, month, after month, year after year to the Lord's table to observe and participate in his death. This is a gift for the people of God. I have a friend of mine named Jonathan Parnell, um, who is a church planner, and I noticed one of the things they do in their church is they have the Lord's Supper weekly. So I had a conversation with him about six months ago. I said, Jonathan, help me understand why you do that. I know churches do, but why do you do it? And his answer to me, he said, where better to meet Jesus than at the table? He said, when people come to our church, we want them ultimately to meet Jesus. It's not about me, it's not about the preacher, it's not about the music, it's not about anything else other than Jesus. I want people to meet Jesus when they come here. Where better place to meet Jesus than at the table?
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What I want to draw from that is what Paul said in verse 28, examine yourself and then eat. I heard a preacher tell a story about a parish in England, a large parish had thousands of members. And when they would celebrate communion, they had a handful of people that showed up. And he noticed this. He said, why is this the case? And the man said, because there is a deep-seated fear among these people. I'm sure planted by some preacher somewhere. But there is a deep-seated fear among these people to take the Lord's Supper. That's not what was supposed to happen. Paul said, if you eat this unworthily, if by unworthily, Paul, you mean I'm not worthy of the grace of God, then none of us ever, nobody ever, ever participates in the Lord's Supper. So that can't mean what Paul means by unworthily. Think here in the context of what Paul is talking about. Doing this unworthily is attitude lack of repentance, lack of examination, because Paul says in verse 28, examine yourself and then eat. So we have a prayer of repentance, and we have assurance from God that He pardons us when we repent. I hope that we would not buy into the idea often that the Old Testament is God in His version of wrath and judgment, and the New Testament's God's version of of grace and mercy because there is plenty of both in both testaments. There is plenty of judgment in the New Testament. R.C. Sproul said the greatest judgment of God is not in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament because of the cross. God's wrath is poured out upon His Son on the cross, Romans 8. That's the greatest God, all of the wrath of God that could be poured out, judgment is poured out on the cross in the New Testament. God judges in the New Testament. Acts 1, Acts 2, prayer meeting, Holy Spirit falls, day of Pentecost. Acts 3, Peter and John go to the temple. Lame man, such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Man gets up, miraculous healings. But right after that, we find the judgment of God. Husband and wife walk into a, a room full of the apostles, the leaders. We sold a property. We want to give the money to the church. But they lied about how much they sold the property for. They, they spun it in a way that said that we're giving you 100% of the proceeds, which they wouldn't have had to do. They weren't obligated to do that. It was the fact that they lied. They tried to make themselves look in a better light. One of them walks in and they lie to Peter and God strikes him dead. The other one walks in a few minutes later. Peter says, let me clarify this. Is this true that you sold it for such and such and are giving this amount? And they said, yeah, that's true. And they fall dead. 
carry their bodies off to be buried. The judgment of God is in the New Testament. The mercy of God is in the Old Testament. Psalm 103, tying this back to the Lord's Supper. When we examine ourselves, this is the God that we serve, we are submitted to. This is His nature. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. That's what happens when we examine ourselves, repent, and then eat. Old Testament, Joel 2, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And He relents from sending His calamity. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. He made a full atonement for us. We are forgiven and we have the promise of eternal life. I want us this morning to feel that forgiveness in our hearts. We are His children. We are His children. Amen. Go back to Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Before we were justified, we did not have peace with God. God was not for us. I was at odds with the maker of the universe because of my sin. That's why the gospel, we call it the good news, it's the greatest news in the world because it turns the relationship of the Almighty God from a God that is against me to a God that is for me. This is why Paul says if God be for us, who can be against us? And that becomes bumper sticker religion, kind of Instagram-worthy scripture post. God's for me. Who else could fight me? I win. God's for me. No, that's not. God being for me is because He wasn't all for. He wasn't always for me, but now He is for me through my status of being in Christ. Amen. Let's stand this morning together. I'd ask uh, Doug if you could just help me hand out the. The elements. Just take one there, bud. Just take one. Will you hand one to Grandma, please? Got it?
trade you. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we ask you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to bless and sanctify this bread and the fruit of the vine to the souls of all those who receive them, that we may eat and drink in remembrance of the body and the blood of your Son, and that they are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus, and always we remember him and keep the commandments which Christ has given us that we may always have your spirit to dwell within us. Father, we praise and thank you for your grace that through Jesus Christ you established this supper in which we eat his body and drink his blood. By your Holy Spirit, help us to use this gift to confess and forsake our sins, to confidently believe that we're forgiven through Christ, and to grow in faith and love day by day until we come at last to the joy of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we're going to obey Paul's commandment in verse 28 to examine ourselves in a prayer of repentance. Father, this morning, we all stand before you as imperfect people. We have so many shortcomings, so many failures, flaws, indwelling sin. But we put all of that upon the cross and under the blood and ask you that we would be a clean and holy and pure people, that you would continue to sanctify us that our prayer every day is let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, we know we're not worthy of your grace, but we humble ourselves asking you to cleanse us and to forgive us of all sin and all unrighteousness. We may please you and reflect your image more perfectly. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we take the elements, take the bread. Jesus said, this is my body that was broken for you. Jesus said, this is my blood that was shed for you. Amen. Let's lift our hands together. Jesus, I know you're already here, but would you let the power of your Holy Spirit sweep over this place? Lord, that we would be a people of the cross, that we would be a people that would daily lift you up, that we would be a people that every day we would follow Paul's example to take up our cross and follow you. That we would be an example of every day to die on a cross that we may live unto you. We remember your death. We honor that as the source of our salvation. We participate in your death that we may also die so that we can live again. Help us, Lord, to think right to do right, to live right, to live pleasing unto you. And most of all, Lord, let us know you in a greater and deeper way that we could follow Paul's heart cry, that I may know you in the fellowship of your sufferings and the power of your resurrection, being made conformable to your death. Lord, I ask you this week as we go our separate ways that you would continue to sanctify us, that you would help us not to be somber, but to be sober, to have a sober mind in the midst of a world that is drunk with pleasure, a world that is drunk 
with infatuation of self, with a world that has pushed you out of every area of life. Lord, we stand as a people to be Christians, to be Christ followers, to be disciples, to be worshipers. Lord, we are the church, we are the body of Christ, and we celebrate that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We sing a song this morning in dismissal.